with that in mind, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. We've been going through our series of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, this text is uh, one of the most quoted texts yet again uh, in the New Testament as one of my seminary professors once said that the New Testament story is the Old Testament story just retold. It's all one story. It's all leading to Jesus and it's all reflecting on Jesus. And uh, what we're going to see here is some, is some key promises to help us understand what the gospel is. So Jeremiah 31, we'll read verses 31 to 35, or excuse me, 31 to 34. <clears throat> Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said. God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And there, there are just five rich promises here that we want to look at. And Father, in this remaining time, we're asking that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us hearts, uh, as it were, to feel this truth. To know that this is the reality of all those who are in Jesus Christ. And that this is the Jesus Christ who is given for people. So would you bring people to Christ? Would you cause them to be born again? That the law might be written on their heart and that they might have that reconciled relationship with you. Do that this very night. And for those who are already in relationship with you, would you please grow us? Would you help us to understand that these promises, that they're still true for us, even though it's hard to believe. Thank you for your word that is always standing. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Y'all know the feeling whenever you pack a suitcase and you're getting ready either maybe to go to Suco or maybe WinterCon or whatever it is, you're packing your suitcase and you're asking the question, have I packed enough? Have I, have I, do I have everything that I need, Right? And then there's sometimes you're pretty sure you have everything and you finally get there and you open it up and you realize the one thing that I forgot is the most important thing and it's my contacts, contact lens for my contacts. Amen? Like, let's be honest. We're, we're always forgetting stuff and we're always asking, have I packed enough? Do I have enough of what I need? And that's always a really good question if we can hit on it again. We're always asking, not just when we're packing things, but when we're in the Christian life. Have I got enough? Have I done enough? Do I have everything that I need? And see, this is what some authors say. This is what they say. Many Christians evaluate their lives and they ask the same questions. Am I doing enough? 
Have I shown enough discipline, enough dedication, or enough effort? If you have those questions about yourself, we're often asking ourselves the question in the Christian life, have I done enough? You see, what's interesting here is that in the context of Jeremiah, is that the northern ten tribes of Israel, so there's the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah, they had split earlier in their years, and the northern ten tribes have already been conquered and they've been taken away into exile. And now Judah, the two tribes in the south, remain, but they're about to be taken over as well. And so they're beginning to reflect on their life with God, and they're obviously tempted to say, have we done enough? But really, in their bitterness, they begin to ask, well, has God done enough for us? You see, God is always the one who does enough for his people. But when we really look at our own hearts, we are not the ones who do enough in light of him. God has allowed his people to go into exile because they've broken his covenant. And so there's this question that's arising that's this. God's made these covenant promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. But then they're watching as you watch your your neighbors and your friends be carried off into exile. And you're thinking, is God now lying? So the question really becomes, how can God be just for people breaking his covenant? But then how can he also be gracious? Now, obviously, we know this side of the cross. That's where those two meet. That's where God perfectly shows forth his justice and his grace. And that's where this covenant is leading us. It's leading us to the cross. It's leading us to the Christ of the cross. Here's what one author, Robert Lethem, says. In Christ, all God's promises meet. In Christ, all requirements of God's covenant from our side is fulfilled. The Old Testament people cannot keep it. And it shows us that we cannot keep God's commandments and God's covenant on our own power. We need someone else to do it. That's who Jesus Christ is. And actually, this text is quoted in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 pretty extensively to show that this is definitively fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now here's what I want to do. Because this covenant, which is called the new covenant, Because this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian or if you become a Christian tonight, these five promises are true for you. This is what you have. Here's promise number one. God's reconciliation is with us. Look at verse 31. Remember, keep your Bibles open. Look at the text. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is right there. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, it's interesting there because God does not merely say the house of Judah. In the house of Judah, uh, they were not, frankly, just as bad as the house of Israel. The southern tribes weren't as bad as the northern tribes. But this is actually really amazing. Because God doesn't look and say, well, at least the people of Judah, they have some potential. I'll, I'll make a new covenant with them, but not those northern tribes of Israel. That's not what he does. He makes it. With all of Israel combined. It is his grace. In other words, this. God does not save you because you have potential. He does not save you because you have anything to offer him. 
He does not save you because he looked through the tunnel of time to see what would so-and-so do. And if they would do good things, then I will save them. No, that's not what he does. It's merely by grace. Because there is no potential in us. Our potential is our depravity. But God in his grace still decides to make a covenant with Israel and with Judah. And here's what's also really interesting here is that if this covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, here's what it means. When you become united to Jesus, you become true Israel. Paul will actually say that. You actually become true Israel. The promises of the Old Testament are your promises. The God of the Old Testament is your God. It is not the Old Testament God and then the New Testament God or just the Old Testament people and then the New Testament people. It is one God and it is one people. And now, in Christ, who actually is the true Israel, we become God's people. We enter into that covenant. And you've got, you got to ask the question this. How did we get this reconciliation with God because of this? Jesus Christ had to be rejected. He has to be rejected so that we can be accepted. That's the only way. But because He is rejected... When you get Jesus, you get this promise of reconciliation. You and God are good. Jesus has done the work. You bank on Jesus, and you and God are good. You have a a full relationship, and you will only grow in your experience of that with heaven being the consummation of it. You get Jesus, you get the promises. Here's promise number two. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I love that. Because when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, what did he do? He wrote them. He wrote them on tablets of stone. But now the law is going to be not just on tablets of stone. It's going to be on your hearts. How does that happen? Because we know, as Ephesians 2, 1 says, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So how in the world is God going to write it on our hearts? He's going to make you alive in Christ. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. This process is called regeneration or the new birth. This is actually prophesied. I'd really encourage you to read it tonight. Ezekiel chapter, it's just the, uh, two books over. Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel looks out after, after a, a valley full of very, very dry bones. They have no potential. There is no life within them. And as Ezekiel prophesies according to the Lord, the bones come together. And then he prophesies for the Ruah, which is the Hebrew word for spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon those bones and it gives them flesh and it breathes life into them. That's what happens for you to become a Christian. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the picture of what happens to us spiritually when we are united to Christ. You are resurrected spiritually so that you can be alive under Christ. That's the promise. That now God's law is written on our hearts. We desire to follow Him. He gives us new, as it were, spiritual appetites. So in other words, this. Before you were a Christian, you wanted nothing to do with God. You were a carnivore. Let's just put it this way. Nothing wrong with carnivores, but just, you know, you get the picture. 
You were a carnivore. All you wanted was meat. But then God makes you alive and he gives you new spiritual taste buds. And now all of a sudden you start to desire also herbs. It's not as if all your desire for meat is totally gone. There will still be remnants of that. There will still be some cravings of that. But you will grow more and more and more to desire herbs. And then fully one day, you'll fully be an herbivore. For whatever that illustration is worth. You get what I'm saying? God is, well, here's what he's doing. If something in this covenant, God is moving in. He's moving towards us. And how is this possible? Once again, it's only possible if Jesus Christ fulfills the law for you and me. We don't fulfill it. We don't live up to God's law. Someone else has to, and he did. And because he fulfilled the law, but then also because he, even though he fulfilled the law, he was punished as if he broke all the laws all the time. And because he was punished, we can be set free. He's the one who sends us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to come alive. You see, here's what one of my uh, seminary professors and good friends, Benjamin Glad, here's what he says. This expectation is finally realized at the very end of history when the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people in the new covenant and they speak truth and only embody his law. Do you want to know what makes heaven heaven? Part of what makes heaven heaven? We will only be able to not sin. When you get to heaven, you won't even have the ability anymore to sin. Amen? That's amazing. You will perfectly embody God's law. Here's what God's law is. It's just revealing who God is. Here's what makes this amazing. You don't need to go back into, as you look at God's commandment, to be in this unhealthy, trembling fear. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The gospel is not this, that you're saved by grace, and then you keep that by works. That's not the gospel. It's all of grace. But with these new desires, we learn to love God. How do we love God? By wanting to be like Him. That's why we seek to obey His commandments. Because the commandments of God reveal who God is. That's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's actually a promise. The Holy Spirit will teach you more and more. It won't be perfect. He'll teach you more and more to be more like Christ. If you get Jesus, you get the promises. Here's promise number three. God's favor is upon us. Look at the end of verse 33. It says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what we could call Emmanuel theology, God with us. God has always been revealing himself and showing himself that he is the God of his people. And matter of fact, here's what's so amazing. Is that God is still determined to love his people. When God looks at his people who deserve his wrath, he's not going to break his covenant even though they've broken it. He will still be their God. And we will be his people. God's favor is upon us. And once again, how does Jesus get this promise for us? Because here's what happened on the cross and here's what we'll look at Good Friday. On the cross... 
Jesus Christ goes on that cross as the ultimate enemy like Psalm 2. He goes up as the ultimate enemy. And God pours out His holy wrath upon Him. And because He goes in our place, we can have favor. Here's the promise for you if you're a Christian. Here's the promise if you embrace Jesus Christ tonight. God cannot pour out His wrath twice. It is either you or Jesus. And if you come to Jesus, you will always have favor with God. That's amazing. You'll always have God's favor. You see, we, we, we don't always live like this. And oftentimes, actually, in our suffering, we think that God's out to get us. I love what Bob Kellerman says. He says this, Satan twists the truth and he tempts us to believe that God, uh, that what God intends for good is actually really evil. God is getting back at us instead of getting us back to himself. That's often the way we, inv- we, we interpret and we view hard times in our life and we think, what have I done? Oftentimes we give that advice to other people. Well, what have you done? That's not always, that's not always a one-to-one identical correlation there. Sometimes God just allows you to go through suffering. But God always, always in your suffering, He's always using it to make you more dependent on Him. His favor is always upon you, even when it doesn't feel like it. But we also have a hard time remembering God's favor whenever we still struggle with sin. Here's what Horatius Bonner says. The belief of the finished work of Christ brings the sinner into favor with God, nor does it leave him uncertain as to this? The justifying work on Calvary was God's way, not only of bringing pardon, but of securing certainty. What is he saying? He is saying this, when you look at the cross, you can bank on the fact that all of your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. You can look at that cross and know for a fact, you will always have favor with God because Jesus Christ took God's wrath. Amen? That's for you. So when you begin to feel like God is against you, here's what you do. It's almost as if when you go to the movies and you're going to watch, I don't even know if they do this anymore. Hopefully this doesn't date me too much. But you, know, you put on those 3D little like flimsy little glasses and it's the lens that you see the 3D movie through. But what happens if you're not wearing those glasses and you're trying to watch that movie? Can you see it accurately? No, it, it, it looks like a jumbled mess. Well, whenever you're not looking through the lens of Scripture, your life will not make sense. But when you look through the lens of Scripture, and when you remember that Romans 8.1 is always true of the Christian, that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, then you know for a fact that it, no matter how dark the days get, God is always having favor towards you. You see, Romans 8.31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love what Horatius Bonner, he says this again. There is at this minute many an aching spirit, bitterly conscious of its own hollowness. Or we could say this, bitterly conscious of its own uh, lacking of enoughness. And then he goes on to say this, your reputation and your work will not fill your soul. God himself must be there with his covering righteousness, his cleansing blood, and his quickening spirit. Here's what Horatius Bonner is saying. We all feel the aching consciousness of not being enough. How can you be filled? 
not by your work, not by your resume, not by your grades, not by boys or girls or whatever it is. You will only be filled by Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's only possible if God himself takes on flesh and he actually goes to the cross to be treated as we should be treated. You see, it's hard to embrace the fact that God really does have favor upon us. I love what Luther says. A godly man or woman feels sin more than they feel grace. Wrath more than they feel favor. Judgment more than they feel uh, redemption. That's so true. Dear Christian, because you have essentially, as it were, committed treason against Satan's kingdom, you have traded the, the life of sin, the life of death, and you have come over to embrace Jesus Christ, you will be attacked. There is a real thing called spiritual warfare. And when you try to follow Jesus Christ, it will not be easy. And He will assault you in many different ways. And you have to expect that. But one of the ways in which you fight is with the shield of faith. You fight with faith in God's promise that He is in favor of you. He's always in your favor. I love what this guy named... Wilhelmus Abrockel says, maybe if we have a third child and is a boy, Wilhelmus. Here's what he says. Satan may also cause someone's conscience to be very sensitive so that a person perceives themselves as offending God in everything that they do, causing them to go their way with much spiritual anxiety. He goes on to say this. They are often accompanied with terror so that the soul immediately loses its composure becomes very agitated and becomes incapable of reasoning rationally. You see, this is why you need gospel community. This is what the seniors were saying here earlier. This is why you desperately need gospel community because there are going to be times where you're assaulted by the evil one and he's going to tell you because of your sin, because of what you've done, there's no way God can still love you. That's what he'll do. He will do all he can to get you. He can't take away your salvation, but he'll do all he can to take away the experience of it. And you need friends who will say, that is not true. You need friends who you can go up to, as I had a very good mentor who basically could have been my dad. And I would go into his office almost multiple times a week, and I would just say, please remind me again. That's what I needed to hear. That's what you need to hear. You have God's favor. Amen? When you get Jesus... You get all the promises of God. Here's the fourth promise. God's knowledge is with us. Look at verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That word for know is uh, not the Hebrew word yoda, but yada. And that word means intimate, personal relationship. It's not merely knowing about. It's knowing. It's actually the same word that is used actually for, we can say it, just intimate sexual relations. When a wife and a husband come together. It is an intimacy with God. Satan knows everything about God or everything that he can know. Satan has more knowledge about God than you and I have. Being a Christian is not just believing in the existence of God or in the things of God. It's believing God. It's intimacy with Him. You can be in here and you can have a lot of knowledge about God, a lot of knowledge about theology, and you can really put up 
quite the image and people can really think that you're a mature Christian, but you don't really know him. Promise that in Christ, you will have an intimate relationship with him. You see, here's what makes the curse of God so frightening is that in Genesis 3.24, it says this, that God drove out Adam and at the east of the Garden of Eden, this is after the fall, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were cast out of God's presence. They were cast into their depravity. God was merciful to him, but it was a sign showing this. We've lost our relationship with God. Do you know how we get that back? Someone has to put their head underneath those flaming swords. Someone has to put their head underneath a flaming sword and take the wrath of God so that we might know him. That's what Jesus Christ does. The curse is not knowing God. Heaven is where you will fully know him. The relationship that you've craved, the relationship that you've longed for, that is ultimately and only found in Christ. You see, that's actually, I love what Virginia said earlier about missions. That's why we go and proclaim the gospel across the street and around the world. Because there are still uh, people who do not know God. This promise is not totally, fully consummated and fulfilled. Heaven will be the place where everyone will know God, but we still have time. And we go in our classrooms and we go in our halls, we go in our neighborhoods or you know, whatever events we have or wherever you find yourself this summer. We're always going and proclaiming people to know the Lord. That's the promise we have in Jesus Christ. You see, where do you see God at work? Where do you see His kingdom? Here's where you see it. You see God at work and you see his kingdom not when there's just a big gathering of people. Not when there's just a big church or there's some Christians who have a big influence in community or things are exciting or there's a very engaging preacher. That's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. How do you know that God is at work? When the fullness of the word of God is being proclaimed, that's when you know. When the gospel and all of it is being always proclaimed and the people are soaking it in. And you know what? That is very often overlooked. It's very often overlooked. But that's where we know where God is. And let me encourage you this summer, go to a church. Not just that's exciting or that the music is, you know, does this or that. That's great. But the church that's most healthy is the church that is singing the word, that's praying the word, that's seeing the word in the sacraments, that's preaching the word, that's reading the word. It's about the word. Because that's how you know God. When you get Jesus, you get the promises. Here's the fifth promise. God's forgiveness is for us. I remember my mom telling me one time, the greatest need in your life is that you be forgiven. Amen. That's your greatest need. That you would be forgiven. And that's exactly what this covenant gives you. That's exactly the promise that's in Jesus Christ, that you will have the forgiveness of sins. But what does it mean? This word, when it says to forgive, particularly, here's what this word means. It means to stop blaming. 
and to stop taking an offense into account. So let me pick on T. Helm for a second. You're my man. T. Helm comes up to me, bang, slaps him, right? To forgive him is to not consider that anymore, is to not blame him anymore, is to not always take that offense into account. The word in the Greek actually for to forgive is also a, a word that can be used for to divorce, to separate from and not to go back to. When God forgives you of your sins, He puts them behind them. He doesn't just dangle them over your head saying, now don't you dare forget this. He forgives. In Exodus 34 verse 9, this is where Moses cries out to God to pardon our iniquities. That's after they sin with the golden calf. Leviticus will use the same word when it talks about how there's pardon, there's forgiveness given to God's people because of an offering. How do you get forgiveness? Because of the offering of Jesus Christ. Not because you're good enough. I love what Anne Lamont said. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a better past. Did you hear that? Because some of you are living your entire college career right now doing all you can to, to do better or to make up for the mistakes you made first semester freshman year or maybe even this past weekend. You're doing all you can to fix your past, to outweigh your bad deeds. And you're doing all you can, but you'll never be able to do it. You spend another 20 years trying to make up for the 20 years that you've been sinning, what'll happen? You'll have another 20 years of sinning. You'll never be able to make it up. Your only hope And what you have in Jesus Christ is forgiveness. How serious is Jesus about forgiving you of all your sins? So serious that he would die for it. Dear Christian, please do not doubt your forgiveness. Run to Jesus Christ and embrace the fact, as the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. When it says God will not remember our sins anymore, it means he won't keep them in mind. In other words, he won't keep considering them. In other words, it's actually very anti-Christian for us to constantly linger over someone else's sin. There is a place for shame, but shame that drives us to Jesus, not lingering shame. So if this is a community that turns into uh, just finger pointing or whispering about what so-and-so did rather than going to meet them, and be gracious, then it shows we have a long way to go in knowing the gospel. The gospel promotes grace and forgiveness. You see, Psalm 103 verse 12 says that God will separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. You can measure where the North Pole is to the South Pole, can't you? But let's do this. Let's start right here right now. Let's all travel east. Let's go as far as we can. Let's travel east. Let's stop after however much time. What's still in front of you? East. What is still behind you? West. As far as you go, no matter how many times you circle the globe, east is always in front of you. West is always behind you. In other words, it's an infinite distance. Because Jesus Christ was separated infinitely from the Father on the cross, your sins are not remembered in Him. Amen? That's amazing. 
I have this quote in your bulletin from Daniel Emery Price. If you'll look at it, he says this, we don't love little because we have little that requires forgiveness. We love little because we've confessed little and we've hidden much. Therefore, we experience little forgiveness. Jesus comes to serve. He comes to forgive unspeakable sins, sins that shock us when they invade the safe place of our clean lives. Let me tell you a story about one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me in ministry. I went to go preach in a church. I was preaching on Luke 7, 36 to 50. Some of you have heard me teach on that literally like every semester. It's a parable, or not a parable, but it's, Jesus tells a parable there, but it's the instance when the prostitute crashes the dinner party. And Jesus is having dinner and, hey, there we go. Jesus, that's all right. I'm good without notes. Uh, that's upside down. I can't do that, though. Um, yeah, that won't work. Jesus is having this dinner party and a prostitute crashes it. And I was preaching this sermon and I was telling them uh, this illustration. Literally, I was listening to this audio book on the way down there. So it wasn't anything that like, man, this was just a great Wilson sermon or something like that. Literally just listened to the audio book and I heard the story and I was like, that'd be a great illustration. Let's put that in there. It's a real story about a guy named Sergeant Bellavia who fought in the Battle of Fallujah. And he was going house to house, door to door. And if you know anything about the Battle of Fallujah, it was one of the most intense battles in the uh, war against Iraq. He had killed numerous people. He had seen unspeakable things. And he had been around people who had done unspeakable things. And one day, the chaplain comes up to him and says, Sergeant Bellavia, can I pray for you? And immediately in his conscience, he begins to think about all the things that he's done, all the people he's killed, all the things that he's seen, and all the things his body has done and he's let happen. And he says, there's no way that God can forgive me. And as I tell that story, I'm at the point where I'm trying to say, because of this text, with Jesus and this woman, and as he forgives her, it is evidence that what Sergeant Bellavia thinks is not true. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I get a text message later. I'm going to read you this text. I get a text message later that day from the pastor of that church. He says this. This is from someone in our congregation. Hi, Casey. I didn't get a chance to thank Wilson for his sermon and message on forgiveness. You can't make this up. I, too, was in Iraq and Fallujah. And I, too, struggle with the realization that God's forgiveness includes me as well. This hit very close to home for me. If you would, please let him know how I appreciate it. Because at that moment, that man heard God's word when Jesus told that woman, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. You can have that in Jesus Christ. For all your sins, for all your struggles. And that's in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these indescribable, glorious truths, these promises that we couldn't even make up. And we ask, and in your mercy and in your grace, that you would help us to believe Jesus Christ and in him, that we might find reconciliation, that we might be born again by the Spirit, that we might find favor with you, that we might know you, and that we might have the forgiveness of all of our sins. Lord Jesus, praise be to your name. We ask all this in your name. Amen.